Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Hi, My Name is Life podcast. This is episode four. I am your host, Aaron. Today is a unique day and something that I wanted to talk about. I'm recording this on October 17th, and on this day last year, I had my gender reassignment surgery, sex reassignment surgery, bottom surgery. It's It has many names. There's no standard to it within the transgender community. I don't know why. We can't just like pick a name and stick with it. So the actual surgical procedure is called, well, mine was uh, a two-stage procedure. The first surgery was a vaginoplasty. That is the official surgical term. Stage two is the labiaplasty, which I'm having in December. So we'll see how that goes. But today marks the one-year anniversary of this surgery. For anybody who has followed me on social media or friends with me on Facebook, know how difficult this story is and has been. And I thought it would be perfect on the anniversary of the surgery to talk about it because it's not something that is widely known unless you're in the trans community. So I thought, why not? This is going to probably be triggering for individuals who are thinking about bottom surgery or on the fence. You know, for those individuals, this is going to be a difficult episode to listen to. Just with it's not very positive. Just want to get that out of the place. If you're someone who's considering bottom surgery or on the fence of bottom surgery, or is just about to have bottom surgery, I mean, you might get something out of listening to this podcast. I would probably not listen to it because I'm going to say things from my personal experience that I don't want to dissuade your decision making or anything like that. But it might be good to listen to what happened to me and how I'm feeling about that surgery specifically. So you get another voice or seeing another perspective on the surgery itself. So you never know. I leave it up to you. All right, let's dive into this. So obviously the specifics of the the surgery, the vaginal plastic surgery is taking the penis and, you know, the material around there and constructing the vagina, so to speak. Obviously, it's way more involved and everything like that. Um, but the basics is constructing the vaginal canal, constructing the, the foundation of the, you know, the outer vagina, moving the urethra and sh- shortening it, creating the clitoris, and rearranging the nerve endings of that area to be in the more you know, in the areas of where female sensation down there would be. So that's the vaginoplasty. A lot of surgeons do it in two stages, the vaginoplasty and the labiaplasty. The second surgery, the labiaplasty, uh, is more cosmetic. And that is more of the ex- the external cosmetics of the vagina, you know, creating the, the labia and the lips and all that stuff and the clitoral hood, all that fun jazz. That's That's off topic for today's episode. Some surgeons do everything in one surgery, so they do the vaginoplasty and the labiaplasty in one. Obviously, there's a wide ranging of debates on which approach is better than the other or whatever. 
let's talk about how I came to the decision of going through uh, with bottom surgery. I am probably a unique trans woman that I never had a lot of body dysphoria about my genitals. I was perfectly fine keeping them. They never really bothered me that much. There was only very specific situations where I had a great deal of dysphoria pertaining to my genitals. That kind of was the major reason for going through with the surgery on top of, you know, feeling complete and the specific situations that would trigger the dysphoria about my genitals really came into play when I started my, I guess, triathlon career. As part of the training process for triathlons, there's a lot of swimming and going into gyms and dealing with locker rooms and wearing, you know, when you're going to the pool and wearing, you know, a, a one-piece swimsuit, there's no hiding <laughs> There's no hiding that penis down there. I mean, you got the bulge and, you know, once you jump into that water and it just like that swimsuit just like becomes a second skin on you, there's no hiding it. That bulge is there and that bulge is there to stay. So that was really that was really difficult for me, especially because I started training for triathlons when I started taking hormones and started the transitioning process. That was really hard. And also, there's no hiding that bulge uh, in a wetsuit. You know, it's there. It's there for everybody to see, you know, and also dealing with locker rooms because, you know, that's a sensitive situation. And, you know, how I deal with locker rooms is drastically different than a lot of other trans women. You know, I'm very respectful in the locker room. I don't just go in there and just pull my pants down and just be like, sorry, ladies, you're just going to have to deal with it because that's just how it goes. I'm not that type of person, you know, and I never will be that type of person. I want to be, I, I really don't want to make people uncomfortable and I want to be as respectful as possible. So how I handled locker rooms was, you know, I would undress, dress in the shower because at the gym that I went to had private individual shower stalls, you know, so I would go in there, do everything that I need to do because I didn't want to make anybody uncomfortable. I wanted to be, I also wanted to feel safe because you don't know how people would react. So in that, in those situations, you really can't hide it. And then also, you know, wearing formal attire, I wear a lot of form fitting clothing, which also makes it very difficult to hide that bulge. So that was probably the biggest driving factor for me to have the surgery because I wanted to be able to use the locker room like everybody else, you know, go to the pool with confidence and not constantly, you know, worrying about is this person looking at me or looking at the bulge down below. You know, I wanted to feel confident and I wanted to feel included. And that was important to me because, you know, I'm in it for the long haul with my triathlon career. So I'm going to be in the gym a lot and I'm going to be at races a lot. So I want to have that confidence and that feeling of just being a normal woman and not having to worry about it and just be able to use these facilities 
like everybody else. Now, should I have to go to that extent to be able to use these facilities like everybody else? No, I shouldn't. But unfortunately, that's not the climate that we live in today. And who knows when society will be comfortable enough with a trans woman in those types of situations naked. It's unfortunate, but it's reality today. So that was probably the biggest deciding factor of having the vaginoplasty. You know, the other side of it was wanting to feel complete, wanting to feel done with my transitioning journey and wanting to feel like what I feel like inside. So it took a while. It probably took me two years to finally be confident and 100% positive that I wanted to go through with bottom surgery. So I start having the conversation with my medical insurance provider and setting up consultations. Unfortunately, at that time, uh, my insurance provider only contracted with one clinic that did the surgery. And the clinic that I went to was the Meltzer Clinic. You know, obviously I could have gone to another surgeon or any, you know, anybody else. But if I did that, I'd be paying 100% out of pocket. Whereas the insurance that I have, it would be covered minus, you know, whatever my out-of-pocket out deductible was at the time of surgery, that's the amount that I would have to pay. I wish, you know, obviously now my insurance company contracts with two other surgeons. If I waited another year, I would have had two other options to talk to and consult with before actually proceeding with my surgery. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? They only contracted with the Meltzer Clinic, so that's what I went with. And, you know, the Meltzer Clinic is one of the best clinics for bottom surgeries. So, yeah, I got it scheduled. Everything was good to go. So, preferencing all of this before going into the real shit <laughs> that happened with this surgery, you know, I just want to be very clear that any surgery that you have, there are risks of complications. Every, you know, there's risks. Everything can go according to plan or everything can't go according to plan. You know, it's not the fault of the surgeon. It's not the fault of the hospital or any of the uh, OR staff. Sometimes shit just happens. That's what you sign up for with any procedure that, you know, you get put under. Obviously, bottom surgery is a very intensive procedure. It's a major procedure. So I just want to make sure that there's risks in doing this. Okay, now we get to the nuts and bolts. Preparing for the surgery is a multi-step process. Obviously, like a month prior to surgery, you need to stop taking hormones Obviously, things can happen when coming off of hormones, specifically for that amount of time. For me personally, I did have a little bit of regression. But I also lost probably about half a cup size in my breasts, which I talked about in my last episode three pertaining to my breast augmentation surgery that I had last week. And why I went through with that surgery was because of the loss of breast development when I was off hormones for that month. 
And then we get to the day before surgery. And <laughs> the day, God, the things that you need to do uh, before surgery, I don't wish anybody would have to go through that. It was the most miserable, unpleasant thing. I, I don't even, it was the most unpleasant event of my life. So like for this type of procedure, you need to make sure that your bowels are completely flushed out. And, you know, you have to take, I think, some medication that kind of starts the movement. And then you have to drink this. I don't even, I can't even remember what it's called. You have to drink this freaking drink that is pretty much, you know, it's going to make you dispense everything from your bowels completely. <laughs> it's going to make you shit a lot. <laughs> And then obviously you have to take like this uh, capsule that's probably, what's a good indication of size? I don't know, about the size of a micro SD adapter, you know, that you put a micro SD card into the adapter for full size uh, memory cards and for laptops. It's probably about that big that you have to insert uh, anally, which is always pleasant. Yeah. so. You stay on the toilet pretty much all night. I didn't get any sleep. And it's, it's the absolute worst experience in the world. I'll just leave it at that. It's terrible. And then it's surgery day. You go in, you do your thing. With my surgeon, they require you to stay in the hospital for nine days. And some surgeons, you know, require that nine-day hospitalization. Some surgeons are like three days. Some do it, you know, keep you in the hospital for two days. I don't know how... Anybody can do the immediate post-op with only being in the hospital two to three days. I absolutely have no idea how somebody can do that. I was so thankful for having that nine-day hospital stay because, oh, man, it didn't. It took probably the seventh day in the hospital for me to just start walking. It was difficult after the, you know, after surgery. It was not, e it's, it's definitely not easy. You're in a lot of pain. Some people obviously are like, well, I was able to get up and start doing real, real activities and stuff like that immediately after. They must be superheroes or something because I have no idea how somebody can just like be perfectly cool after a procedure like that. But I was in a lot of pain. And as soon as they took me off of morphine drip and onto like, I think it was oxy or something like that, but it was pill form. The pain was abs you know, the, the pain was unbearable. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't do anything. You know, nurses are always like, rate your pain from zero to 10. My pain was like a 20. And the, the lifespan of oxy in your system is roughly about four hours, give or take. I have a very high metabolism and I tend to burn through medication fairly quickly. I burned through that in an hour. And after that hour, hour and a half, it was like pain rating of 20. And there was nothing the nurses could do because they're like, we can't give you any more pain meds, you know, for another three hours. So I was just left for an excruciating pain for three hours because there was literally nothing that they can do. And I begged and pleaded with them to put me back on a morphine drip. And they're just like, we can't do it. It's a procedure. We need to wean you off of it. 
So that was like three days, and that was fucking miserable. But then they want you to start dilating immediately. Dilation is, you know, best way to describe it is a medical grade dildo. It's specifically designed to be inserted into the vaginal canal and make sure that it keeps depth and keeps the overall, like, what is it, diameter and stuff. You have a set of four dilators ranging from different sizes. You know, they go from one to four. You know, obviously one is being fairly thin and then they gradually get bigger and bigger. Uh, But they're designed to keep the vaginal canal open. And once you're in the hospital, the first, I think, two days, you need to dilate four times a day every four hours, which isn't easy, especially, you know, you're recovering from a major surgery. Your body is pretty much done. Your brain is trying to be like, whoa, where's your penis? It's not there anymore. Uh, and then having to, you know, dilate every four hours is insane. So that's all that, you know, some of the weird things from the surgery is, uh, the phantom pain. A lot of trans people who have gone through the surgery will talk, will talk about the fan, you know, having phantom pains down there. Uh, it's very real. You know, your brain is still wired to think that, you have a penis, your, your genitals are outside, you know, out external to your body, not internal. Post-surgery, a lot of nurse, you know, nurses would come in and ask me, where's the pain? And all I could tell them was the pain is in the tip of my penis. Obviously, that's not there anymore. <laughs> so, you know, the phantom pain was like probably one of the hardest things to because there's nothing really... There's nothing to prepare you for that sensation or that feeling until you actually experience it firsthand. Someone can describe it to the best of their ability, but you don't really comprehend it until it actually happens. And that was the biggest thing to adjust to is those phantom pains. And then obviously, you know, the first time they take the catheter out and they want you to pee, that's also, you know, there's, you're learning a lot in a very quick amount of time because everything is different down there. And the first thing that I tell people regarding the surgery is women pee 100% differently than guys. It's night and day. When I had a penis, you know, just go to the bathroom. You didn't have to think about anything. You just go. It just goes. The first time that I had to pee after surgery, I went to the bathroom. I sat on the toilet and nothing was happening. And... I had no idea what I was supposed to do. And I just started crying because I didn't know how to pee anymore. And, you know, I, I pulled on the little cord that they have in bathrooms for like the emergency thing. And like all of these nurses come in and they're, and they're like, what's going on? What's happening? And I'm like, and I'm just sitting on the toilet and I'm looking at them like crying. And I'm like, I don't know how to pee. And they all kind of laughed and it was funny. And even though I was sitting there legit, like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. And they're like, oh, sweetie, you just have to like, you just need to relax, relax the muscles and just relax and just start thinking about peeing. Just think about it while relaxing everything, you know, relaxing all the muscles down there and it'll just start and you'll just start going. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. What? 
I need to think about peeing and then it just starts peeing. No, this isn't how things worked. I just go. So after a while, I finally do it. I finally did what they wanted me to do. I just kind of relaxed and just concentrated and thought about peeing. And then boom, there goes the pee. And I'm just like, oh, that's really weird. You quickly learn that you no longer have control of where your urine goes. Uh, the urine just kind of decides where it wants to just come out. And if that's splashing all over, you know, the underside of your legs, then that's where it goes. It's weird. I still find it weird even today. So in a very short amount of time, you're learning new things very quickly and you're needing to adjust everything very quickly because there's just like there's no time to just kind of like be educated. Everything from when you wake up from surgery until you start getting used to things with having a vagina and you're just kind of like you're re you're learning, you're relearning how to do everything down there. Cause everything's different, especially if you're used to having a penis for, you know, for me, 36 years. Right. So that, that's a big challenge. That's a, that's a huge challenge. Now we get to the difficult part and kind of the disheartening and sad part of the story. So Pretty much ever since I got discharged from the hospital and I returned home, recovery was not going according to plan. <clears throat> and when I say not going according to plan, uh, healing was not going the way it's, it was supposed to. And I was having a lot of concerns with how things were going, mainly pertaining to, you know, dilating and the discharge that was coming, you know, that was happening the, the amount of swelling that wasn't going down, the amount of bleeding, constant bleeding that was happening, uh, granulation tissue that was not going away. Things were not normal. And then we get to around November 1st. It's a day that I will never forget. I did my usual dilation, you know, because at this point, you know, you're still dilating four times a day. Those, that doesn't start decreasing until like two, three months post-op when you can start decreasing the, the number of dilations, which dilating will consume your life and you won't have much to do during that period because you're dilating every four hours. But November 1st, I did my normal dilation and then a, few, you know, a couple hours go by and I needed to go to the bathroom. And you know I sat down and instead of... Uh, urine coming out, it was pretty much a faucet nonstop, you know, a faucet turning on of nonstop blood just gushing out of my uh, vagina. Obviously, that's a big concern and it wasn't stopping. So I literally had to take a bunch of toilet paper and just like cover it because it was nonstop bleeding to get back into my room. I was renting a room with roommates at the time. Uh, to get back into my room just so I can put a diaper on because at that point you have so much, you know, during that time you have so much discharge, you know, from dilating and just like healing and stuff like that. You're going to be wearing diapers. I don't know anybody who did not wear a diaper because the amount of discharge that comes out, panty liners aren't going to cut it. And it took probably about a minute for the blood to soak through a diaper. Obviously this was a problem. I called the emergency uh, nursing line for the surgeon's office, telling them what was going on. They were very concerned. You know, I'm on the floor in my room, 
And the first thing that they told me was to have somebody get you probably a softball size wad of paper towels and to just cram that up my vagina as far up there as possible. At this time, my roommates were home and I was practically yelling for help, asking anybody who could hear my voice. And, you know, my bedroom was down the hall from the kitchen and my roommates were in the kitchen yelling out saying, I need somebody to get me a giant wad of paper towels, like immediately. And, you know, yelling at him that I'm bleeding out. I need, uh, I need a wad of paper towels to help stop the bleeding. And I wasn't getting any response. You know, at the time, I didn't know they were in the kitchen. I just knew that they were home and I never got a response. So I had to do it myself, and I saw that they were just chilling in the kitchen. I know they could have heard, they could hear me perfectly fine, but you know, obviously, I had bigger concerns. Got the toilet paper, stuck it up there, and uh, got back on on the phone with the nurse. And you know, she immediately was like, "You need to get to the emergency room. Do you have anybody that can take you there, or do you have anybody home that can call nine one one?" And my roommates were there. And once again, I yelled out, I was like, I need somebody to call 911. I'm bleeding out. The blood's not stopping. I need to get to the emergency room. And I actually got a response. My roommate responded, you can't do that yourself. Yeah, just let that soak in for a little bit. Screaming for help, bleeding out, needing somebody to call 911 and having your roommate saying, oh, you can't do that yourself? Okay. Yeah, because I really want to hang up on the nurse that is trying to help me and calm me down and, you know, giving me advice of what to do to help stop the bleeding. And this person's like, well, just call him yourself. You're more capable. You're more than capable of doing it. Okay. Yeah. Those roommates were fucking assholes, and I'm glad that I don't live there anymore. Terrible people. Um, so unfortunately, I had to hang up on the nurse, which I didn't want to do to call 911, called 911, told them that, you know, it's a medical emergency. I'm bleeding out. They transferred me to Seattle Fire and Aid. I was talking to them, gave them my address, and the person on the phone was just was like, all right, they'll be out there in a few minutes. And then they just hung up on me. So I'm literally laying in my laying in my bed, scared to death, bleeding out. By now, you know, I've soaked through the wad of paper towels. And unfortunately, at that time, you know, with the loss of blood, I couldn't really get up to get more paper towels. And my roommates were unwilling to help me. After probably five minutes or so, the medics finally arrived. And, you know, I'm going to be telling you all who it is. This is Seattle Fire and Aid. They deserve to be called out. So the medics finally arrived. They wanted to stay as far away from me as humanly possible. You know, they did not want to come near me. They never checked my vitals. They just stood at the far end of my bedroom asking me questions. That's all they wanted to do. And here I was just laying in my bed with a blood-soaked wad of paper towels. And, you know, I asked them, I was like, do you have anything to help stop the bleeding? And their response was, we have trauma wraps. Great. <laughs> are, are trauma wraps designed to absorb blood and help stop bleeding? No. 
They didn't have anything to help control the bleeding. They didn't want to get near me. They didn't want to check my vitals. I don't know if this is standard procedure for Seattle Fire and Aid or if it was because I was trans. I'm leaning more towards because I was trans. Looking back at it, that seems kind of odd that you are a trained medic and you have a person who's bleeding out and you don't want to go anywhere near the person. Anyways, yeah. So they're like, all right, so we need to get you to the emergency room. You know, they said the ambulance is about five minutes out depending on traffic lights and traffic. What? <laughs> so here, I'm laying there and they're telling me an ambulance is five minutes out. You know, my bed was against uh, the window, which was uh, street facing. You know, I kind of I turned around and looked outside the window and I'm t- asking the medics, I'm like, didn't, didn't you guys come in an ambulance? They're like, oh yeah, the ambulance is parked out front. I was like, well, why don't you? why don't you just put me in there and let's go to the emergency room? Why are we waiting for another ambulance? They're like, oh, we don't transport people. I'm like, and I'm just laying there. I'm like, what? And I don't know if it was because of loss of blood or, or anything like that, but I literally told them, why the fuck are you here? You people haven't done anything. You aren't prepared at all for someone who's bleeding out, which I said beforehand, you knew coming in the situation, you're not prepared for it. You come in an ambulance, but you don't transport. You're not like, you're not doing anything for me. And I'm just like, why the fuck are you here? I'll just wait for the people who actually know what the hell they're doing. So the third party uh, EMTs finally arrived and those people were fucking rock stars. I was so impressed with them. They got, you know, they came into the house and in my room as fast as possible. They started checking my vitals. You know, they started to, at least they had something to replace the wad of paper towels. They were awesome. They were rock stars. I love them. And plus the EMT that was working on me the most was incredibly attractive. And I fell in love immediately. I don't know if that was the amount of blood loss or, yeah, he was very attractive. And I constantly told him how attractive he was. I tend to do that a lot with EMTs and nurses when I'm in situations like that. I don't know. I didn't get a phone number, though, unfortunately. But they were cool. They put me in the the ambulance and they took me to the emergency room. The thing that was shocking was every time that they they constantly checked my vitals and my vitals were normal which was weird because I lost a lot of blood. And when I got to the emergency room, I had to wait for about 30 minutes before I got a room. And I felt that kind of weird. I was just kind of pushed up against the wall. And I was very thankful that the EMTs that transported me stayed with me the entire time. They didn't leave while the rest of the hospital staff, the ER staff were completely oblivious and not doing anything. And I kind of, you know, after about 20 minutes, I was asking the, the EMT, I was like, I'm bleeding out. Like, I'm not, the blood's not stopping. Like, why aren't they taking this seriously? And he said, it's because your vitals are normal. I'm like, what? That doesn't make sense. And then he was, and then he started asking, you know, he's like, do you 
do you work out a lot or anything like that? And I told him I was a triathlete. And he's like, well, that's why. That's why your vitals are good, because you're in incredible shape. I was like, I'm the same color as these gurney sheets where anybody who's been in a hospital or an ER, those sheets are really white. I'm like, I'm as pale as these sheets. And he's like, it's because your vitals are normal. So, you know, you're just prioritized differently. I finally got a room and people started paying attention and taking uh, my situation seriously. And because as soon as I got in the room, that's when my vitals started to drop very quickly. And that's when, you know, we started to get the staff that actually knows what they're doing and the ER staff that were taking care of me in the hospital, they were awesome. You know, the ER doctor was awesome. The ER nurses that were helping me were awesome. They went above and beyond what they needed to do when I finally got into a room. I was also incredibly impressed with the ER doctor because he fully admitted, he's like, I'm not familiar with any of this, you know, referring to uh, my vaginal plasty. He's like, I've never seen this. I've never dealt with this. I don't know how to, he's like, I don't know how to approach it because this isn't something that I've encountered before. And I was really impressed and I admired, and I admired that because most doctors are very ego driven and they never want to admit that they don't know how to handle something. You know, obviously he knew how to handle like the basic stuff of, you know, the bleeding and the other things. But when it actually came to investigating where the bleeding's going or coming from or anything like that, he really was just like deer in headlights because he didn't. And another thing that I appreciated, he didn't want to just like go into the vaginal canal and just start exploring because obviously that could have detrimental effects, you know, causing more damage than good in that type of situation, you know. And then he started calling the surgeon's office, talking to the surgeon and the nurses at the Meltzer Clinic and getting an understanding of kind of like what he can do and what he can't do. Thankfully, at this time, the bleeding finally stopped only because... <laughs> only because my vaginal canal is completely full of blood clots. So you couldn't even like look inside it if, even if you wanted to put uh, those, uh, what, is, what are they called, the, the duckbill things to open things up. You couldn't even put that in. So obviously they have no idea where this bleed out is coming from. And thankfully on that specific day, to my luck, the ER doctor is like, there's a surgeon uh, from Kaiser, which is my medical provider. This is like the planets aligning on this day, on this terrible day. There was a surgeon on Kaiser on call because I was at Swedish. They took me to a, a Swedish hospital that was on call that, you know, is, uh, I, can't, I can't remember her area of expertise, but it's female reproductive. It's in that area, female reproductive areas uh, that was on call. And he's like, I'm going to try to call her because she's actually, she actually has some experience with male to female and vaginal passes. And she happened, she happened to actually picked up the phone when he called and she's like, I'll be right, you know, I'll be there in a few seconds. She came, she's like, Ooh, you know, talking to <clears throat> the surgeon on the phone, sending photos back and forth. She's like, this is really bad at this time, even though my bleeding was 
controlled because of the blood clotting, I still lost a great deal of blood. And when she made the decision of like, we need to go, we need to take you back into the OR so we can see what the hell's going on. But they were also like, you're not stable enough to go into surgery. So I ended up needing two units of blood, which was my first blood transfusion. And that is an experience on its own. Getting a blood transfusion is nothing compared to like your standard IV and, you know, like putting saline or whatever. I mean, blood is thick and it's going through a very narrow tube into a very narrow needle into your vein. And I'm very thankful for the person who donated their blood. Uh, It saved my life and then went into surgery. She was able to clean out all the blood clots and everything like that. I wish I could share the photos of what my vagina looked like at that time, but you know, it's not pretty and it's not for the faint of heart, these photos, and also no social media or Twitch would ever allow these photos to be shown. But it's not, it was not pretty. It was, it was really gory and really bad. Um, but if anybody wants to see them, happy enough to share. <laughs> Knowledge is power. So they went in, cleared all the blood clots, found a few areas of active bleeding, stitched everything up, had to repack the vagina, the vaginal canal. That, when I say repacking, you know, they did this, you know, after the actual procedure, the surgery is that uh, for the first day or two, they have, you have packing in the vaginal canal because obviously you can't dilate. So they need to make sure, you know, it's soaked in antibiotics and it keeps everything open and where it needs to be, but they pack it full and they sewed the vagina back up, you know, catheter in. And pretty much after that second emergency surgery, I was right back to where I was on the set October 17th, right back to day one of uh, recovering from this vaginal plasty. So I had the packing in for a few days. You know, I was in the hospital for two days. I thought that they discharged me too soon, got the packing out. And at first we thought that everything was going to be okay. Uh, So I went on continuing my dilation schedule and everything like that. And then I got my care got transferred over to a urologist who's also familiar with uh, vaginal plasties and stuff like that to continue tracking the recovery process. And at first we thought everything was okay. And after a few months, things were still not going according to plan. Healing was still not happening. You know, at, we're looking at like three, four months, you know, three months post-op, you know, you're supposed to be dilating maybe two times a day. And, you know, things should be looking healthy within the vaginal canal. For me, healing was not happening. Skin was not regenerating in the vaginal canal. Uh, it was just like the canal was just full of granulation tissue that was not going away. And the typical uh, treatment for granulation tissue is using silver nitrate, which cauterizes the skin to so essentially it's burning the granulation tissue and cauterizing the granulation tissue to help promote healing and skin regeneration. So I was getting weekly silver nitrate treatments that didn't seem to be doing anything at all. That's when people started to start raising some red flags and started to like, mm, you know, started to 
kind of go, uh, I, something is wrong, but we don't know what. But let's continue the course, uh, continuing with the silver nitrate treatments and seeing how it and just see how it goes and just weather this out and maybe some miracle would happen. And then there was a there was a day when I went to the bathroom again and I felt a solid chunk fall out from the surgical area. It did not look like something, you know, it wasn't a bowel movement. The brief second that I was able to see it before it fell deep enough in the toilet where I couldn't see it anymore. It was fleshy colored that had kind of had kind of a rib cage texture to it. It did not look normal. It definitely was not normal. And then that's when people got seriously concerned. And I flew down to Arizona to my surgeon to get uh, to have my surgeon look at it. And that's when, you know, at this point, it's kind of like five months post-op, I think, around five months. If I, It's kind of shady on the timeline now, just because, you know, still dealing with the complications today. It's just never ending. Finally came to the conclusion that I lost my vaginal canal because um, for my vaginal plasty, since I didn't have enough material, they had to take a skin graft to line the vaginal canal. So, you know, they took a fair amount of skin from my torso. I have a scar that goes from pretty much half the length of my body that she said you had a, a complete skin graft loss. Um, there's no healthy skin in the canal at all. And she just straight up told me, she's like, you lost your vagina. At first, she thought that we could salvage it, <clears throat> you know, because because I was so on top of my dilation schedule, you know, dilating, I still had good enough depth where she's like, I think it might be uh, salvageable. We might be able to take another skin graft and reline it and see if the graft will, will take and not be rejected. But, you know, after she talked to a few colleagues and everything like that, she came back. This was probably a few weeks after the appointment. She's like, the success rate of relining the vaginal canal is so low, it's not even worth attempting. And that I needed to start the process of allowing the vaginal canal to close. This started fairly recently. We started this process about two months ago, a month and a half to two months ago. So at that time, we were, we're already at six, seven months post-op. And at that, at around the six, seven months, you should be recovered. You should be healed. You should only be dilating once every other day, you know, minimum. But I was not that. So the process of allowing the canal to close is not an easy process. Well, it's, it's straightforward, but it's, it has its own set of risks. Because obviously, you need to make sure that the vaginal canal closes correctly. And the correct way for it to close is to close from the inside out. It needs to be done in a very, not necessarily slow process, but a very specific process of continuing to dilate on the, you know, the four times a day schedule that I've been doing, but, you know, slowly decreasing the depth of the dilator to allow the inside of the canal to slowly start closing outwards. 
Um, you do, you know, you can't just like stop dilating and just let it close naturally. That is very dangerous because there's a very high risk of pockets forming. There's no way to say that the, it's the best way to describe it, the outermost part of the canal to close up and like that. So like the outside of the canal closing up and then running into the issue of, because you still have granulation tissue in the canal uh, and granulation tissue creates discharge. And since it didn't close properly, that discharge can get trapped with inside your body. And that's bad because the, the discharge has nowhere to go. So it can develop into, you know, it starts kind of soaking into the body and then it starts forcing its way out through the skin when it gets real bad, becomes a cyst. Bacteria can form very quickly. You can get really sick and then usually requires a surgical procedure to A, get rid of the discharge and, you know, probably insert drainage tubes. It's bad. You need to follow the process to close because once a pocket forms, it's very difficult to get that discharge to get out because you want to go from in to out. So you keep the external part open as best as possible to allow the, the remaining discharge from the granulation tissue to exit the body. So that's what I've been doing for the past month and a half, two months. So starting the process, I was on the number three dilator, which is the second to largest dilator, four being the largest, getting about five and a half inches of depth. And within, I'd like to say within that month and a half, I'm down to the first dilator, which is the smallest of the dilators. And now at around two to three inches of depth. So we went from five and a half inches of depth to two, two to three inches of depth. So the, the canal is pretty much closing just on the, uh, the inside of the pelvic floor muscle. And once we get to now that we're at this area where it's just right behind the muscle, this is when the process starts to slow down a lot because we need to make sure that everything inside is fully healed and that the discharge is starting to decrease before we can just stop dilating altogether. But we also need to make sure that um, there's enough healthy skin on the outside of where, you know, where it eventually is going to close up, you know, on the other side of the muscle. You need to make sure that there's enough healthy skin there to regrow to do like the final kind of like close off process. So that's where I'm at right now. We're still working on getting it closed. So the end result of it all is... I don't have a vaginal canal. That's a difficult pill to swallow, specifically, you know, going in to the surgery of one of the deciding factors for me to go in there is to feel like that my transition journey is over and to lose that vaginal canal, I, to, to have lost my vagina, I don't feel, I don't feel complete. I feel, I don't feel like my, my journey in transitioning is done because I have a non-functioning vagina. Obviously, you know, everything on the outside is there. It just, there is no vaginal canal. And I just remembered right now of one of the other reasons why I wanted the surgery 
was because I've always dreamt of having that experience of vaginal intercourse and being able to have vaginal intercourse and feeling like a woman of having, you know, a sexual, you know, a sexual experience like a cis woman would have, you know, experience. That was really, really, really important to me. That was something that I really wanted. And now I lost that. It sucks. So getting all those details out of the way, as a deep person, you know, sharing, you know, obviously this story is incredibly personal to me um, and difficult to share, but it's also important to share because people tend to not communicate when things go wrong. People like to share when things are successful and went perfect. People tend to not want to share things that failed. You know, people don't want to share failure. It's important to share these stories of that because people need the complete picture going into these types of procedures. You know, it's not the fault of the surgeon or anything like that. There's risks and there's complications. You know, unfortunately, I encountered one of the rare complications of the surgery, you know, so it took a really long time to get over that. You know, for the past year of dealing with this, I 100% regret the decision. I wish I never decided to go through this surgery. Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty, and looking back, you can always kind of be like, well, that was a dumb choice because look what happened. But I regret the decision. But as I tell everybody, when it comes to making really difficult decisions, your decisions have consequences. Whether they're good, whether they're bad, they still have consequences. Your decisions always have consequences. And if you are not willing to be okay with the consequences of that decision, don't make the decision. This is the best advice that I can, I can give people. I knew going in to this surgery that there are risks, even though I regret the decision, I accept the consequences, even though I have to live the rest of my life with a non-functioning vagina, I accept the consequences of my decision. I understand what happened and I understand the risks and I'm okay with that, quote unquote, okay with that. If you make that decision and you know that you're not okay with the consequence and that consequence happens, you're going to have a miserable life and you're never going to, you're never going to overcome it because you can't, you, you went into it thinking nothing bad's going to happen. It's all going to go well. Now, you know, it's not the end of the world. I can still have the surgery again. Uh, my surgeon said after a year from when the canal fully closes and heals, you can have the surgery again. Now, whether I want to have the surgery again, right now, I'm 100% not going to have the surgery because it's already failed once. What's the likelihood of it failing again? Obviously, nobody can give you odds of it failing again. You know, there's risks going in to that first vaginoplasty. The risks are, you know, tenfold going into a second one. And on top of that, they're going to, you know, I have no material to construct the vaginal canal the second time around. So it's going to be another skin graft and another scar. You know, the scar is not small. We're talking about a size of half my torso. That's how big the skin graft scar was for the first one. So we're looking at another of those scars on the other side of my torso. My body already has enough scars as it is. I have a scar from my kidney surgery when I was a kid. 
you know, that's on my right side. I have the scar for the skin graft, when, which is across m half of my torso. You know, I got two, I'm going to have two scars under my breast from my breast surgery last week to then have another skin graft scar on the other side of my, on the left side of my body. That's a lot of scars. Of course, there are other methods for the procedure that doesn't require skin grafts. You know, there's part of the colon that they use for uh, lining the canal, which has a hole on top of the risks of, of vaginoplasty, uh, has additional risks on top of it. And a lot of surgeons don't like to use that method because of those risks. And then there's another method that's fairly new. They use lining of the ab of the abdomen as the as the lining for the canal. But again, this method is fairly new. There's not a lot of data for how that method of the procedure will go historically, which is why I, I didn't go with it because the it's too new. But I've been through the surgery already. I've had it. I know the level of commitment that's required for the post-op care. You know, you know what's involved, but you don't really know the toll that it takes on your body, your social life, uh, your life in general, until you actually start doing it. You know, that dilation schedule, obviously it was worse for me because I had to continue doing the four times a day way beyond what your average person that has gone through the vaginal plasty has to go through. You know, it's only, you only have to do that for like the first two, three months. And then after that, you can start decreasing. You know, I was dilating four times a day for five, six months before I started to go down to three. And, and then now the past month and a half, I've been dilating two times a day. But like, you don't have a social life. You can't go anywhere. This was before the pandemic happened, but like you can't miss a dilation. You know, that schedule you have to stick to. You have to be committed to that schedule and doing it every four hours. Like you can't go see a movie because <laughs> you got to dilate, you know? And, you know, for me, because everything was going wrong, I couldn't do anything. All I could do was lay in bed and maybe be able to walk or walk around the block. That was my recovery. It was just recently that I've actually been able to be active, like June, around the end of June, July, when I actually was able to like run and ride my bike and drive, <laughs> like being able to like do normal things. I literally just started doing that the end of June, more so in July. So everything from... October of last year to July of this year, I was stuck in bed, dilating four times a day, barely able to walk a, a block, wasn't able to drive, barely was able, you know, I could drive maybe five, 10 minutes tops, and then I was done. That's eight months. Eight months of doing, of not being able to do anything. Put that in perspective. That's like eight months of my life. It was just like complete hell dealing with the multiple surgeries and the constant recovery and the failed recovery of this surgery. That's why I regret this decision. So it's like eight months of my life dedicated to this thing. And, you know, the day that, you know, my surgeon and my doctor said this was 
this was a fun, yeah, this was a funny conversation that I had with my surgeon. Uh, you know, cause I asked her, I was like, all right, well, everything's gone to shit. When can I ride my bike? She's like, you can't do anything to make it any worse. So knock your socks off, do whatever. She's like, do whatever you want. You can't, you can't make it any worse than it already is. I was like, great. And as soon as I got back home from that appointment, went on my bike, hurt like hell. But I was like, God damn it. I got a lot of activities to make up for because the last eight months, I don't need to, I don't need to, oh God, man, eight months of my life gone because of the surgery. This is why I gave the warning before the episode started uh, that you might not want to listen. I don't think I'm going to have the surgery again because I know the hell that it went put me through the first time around. And I don't, you know, that dilation schedule, even if it decreases, I don't want to dilate for the rest of my life. And you have to dilate for the rest of your life. Yeah, sure. People will be like, well, just have sex more frequently. I'm like, no, that's not how that works, man. That's not how that works. Unless you find a guy who has a very specific size penis, sticks it into your vagina, and <laughs> keeps it in there, not moving for 15 minutes, sure, knock your socks off. Then you don't have to dilate anymore. But <laughs> what guy What guy is going to just like stick it in there and not move for 15 minutes? That's not happening. So, you know, you have to dilate for the rest of your life. And I don't want to do that right now. I don't want to do that, you know, a year from now or two years from now, three years from now. Will I have a different opinion? Maybe I don't have to make a decision right now. I don't have to make a decision a year from now. I can sit on it and take as much time as I possibly want to decide the first time around having being able to experience vaginal intercourse uh, was really important to me. You know, if that continues to be important and a driving force for me, who knows? I might do it. But right now, no, I'm I'm perf I'm perfectly fine with how it is. Granted, you know, I thought, you know, dating and having a healthy sexual life was awkward before the vaginal plasty. You know, if I wanted to date a guy or be sexually involved with a guy, you know, have that awkward conversation of like, oh, I don't have a vagina, you know, I have a penis. Are you cool with that? Are you not cool with that? Going into the vaginal plasty, I thought, you know, oh, I'll have a fully functioning vagina. So, you know, I don't have to have that awkward conversation anymore. <laughs> now I have, <laughs> now I have even more awkward conversation to have with, you know, with guys of, if it becomes, you know, if I become sexually involved with anybody if now, it's even more awkward because I have to be like, oh, yeah, there's a vagina down there, but there's no hole for you to stick your penis in there. Sorry. Yeah. How awkward is that going to be? So, yeah, it sucks. It's heartbreaking, really. It's a tough story to tell. It's not a happy story. And there's no... I mean, like, the only good ending to this story is I'm healthy-ish. I finally get my life back. I can get back on the bike. I can get back to training. Obviously, when everything else is healed, hopefully next year. I got rid of the bulge, which was super important. So now I don't have to deal with that. I can go into locker rooms with confidence and not have to, like, hide you know, to get dressed or to do anything, I can go into that locker room, get undressed. Bef 
I could dance around that locker room full butt naked and nobody would even fucking know because it looks like a vagina down there and just might not have the internal stuff of a vagina. But like I could go dancing naked in a, in a locker room now. And that's fucking awesome. I don't have to hide anymore. And that's huge. That's, you know, I would say that's worth. Well, no, I wouldn't say that's worth everything that I've gone through. That's that's, that's almost worth everything that I've gone through. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I get to go in that locker room with full confidence and be able to get naked with all the ladies in there and be like, yeah, check me out, whatever. <laughs> so there, you know, there's some positives coming out of it, even though there's a lot of negatives, there's still some positives. I'll just emphasize uh, the advice that I gave you that I talked about uh, before going into these large life choices you know, and this goes across like any life decision. Uh, your decisions have consequences. And if you're not okay with those consequences, whether they're good or bad, if you're not okay with the consequence, don't make the decision. It's not worth it. You aren't ready to make that decision yet. Once you are okay with the potential consequences, you are ready to make that decision. That's the best advice that I can give and that I will leave with all of you. This was a really long episode. Thank you everybody for hanging in there. It's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of information. I hope you were able to get something out of it, but that concludes today's episode. Happy vaginalplasty anniversary to me. Uh, here's hoping that my labiaplasty goes according to plan in December. So housekeeping. Feel free to send in your questions or your comments or anything else pertaining to what we talked about to podcasts at hi, my name is Aaron.com. That's Aaron E-R-I-N. Be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at hi, my name is underscore life. Once again, thank you everybody for sticking around and I hope everybody has a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye.